Barnyard of Economics and Happiness. I'm afraid that latter part of your work will probably not be too today. So, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, actually, it will. Um, because happiness chaps like me um, have actually for a long time been interested in well-being. And one of the things we've seen is a considerable decline in people's well-being. Is it working? I think it's working. I can yell. Um, so thank you for having me. Um, my, my background actually is, a, is, a, is as a labour economist, not from the Labour Party, but the Labour, the labour market. Let's just get clear on this. Um, and my background and training was actually I worked on youth unemployment and unemployment and wages, financial markets, and US and UK comparisons. And I was appointed to the Bank of England about three and a half years ago, and somebody said, why would that be of any relevance? Turned out it was awfully relevant. Because it turns out that many of the things that we've seen in the past, and particularly in the labour market, uh, have carried over. Am I doing something wrong here? Aha, uh -huh. goody. I didn't like to press that. Um, so what I'm going to talk about is what can we do about rising unemployment in the OECD? Um, some of this may be sort of unpalatable to some, but I have the view that unemployment is a major crisis that we need to do something about. And that seems to me a scary starting point. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about uh, what happens, what's, what are the costs of unemployment, what's happened in the world, uh, what, 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 what changes have taken place so far, and where are we gone. Uh, and I guess I've been called Mr. Doom and Gloom for quite a long time, and unfortunately I'm probably going to say to you that there's not much sign of recovery at all, and we'll talk about that. Hopefully. Nothing happened. Oh, there we go. Um, first thing seems to me coming from the US. I, I lived in the US, worked at Dartmouth, and I was commuting every two weeks back and forth between the US and the UK. And I think that gave us a very good indicator as to what was coming. And I think when, we, when we're through this crisis, we'll actually look back and say it was eminently predictable. Seeing that, first of all, if you looked at what happened in the US, in most, virtually all European countries, the pattern of things that occurred there repeated themselves in Europe. So the first part of the story was that actually the, the, the very first part of this great recession started in the US housing market, uh, then moved to the labor market in the US, uh, and then spread itself to other countries around the world. But it certainly appeared from looking at the data that asset markets, particularly yeah, in a number of countries, probably the UK, Ireland, and Spain especially, um, they look like bubbles, the housing market looked like bubbles. If you look, for example, in the UK, uh, a statistic that I like is the house price to earnings ratio, which is roughly, when I, when I first bought a house, you'd go in and they say, how much do you make, how much do you put down? Right, I'll give you 3.2 times what you make. And roughly, if you draw that ratio, so to take the average house price for a country or for an area, and relate it to average earnings, for 100 years, that gives you about 3.4, 3.5 or so. That's the mean for 100 years. In the UK, in 2007, June, it was up at about 5.6. Uh, and that suggests, basically, I think, if you just do the econometrics, that gives you a rough clue uh, um, how far it's going to go. I've said on a number of occasions, you'll expect roughly for it to come back to that level. That's a fall of about a third. And every house price shock we've ever seen has an overshooting. So you might see an overshooting more than that. And in a number of countries, Ireland and the UK especially, 
the, the, the rise in, asset, in, in the asset price, the house price bubble, was actually greater than the United States. Uh, and, the, and the UK is, and maybe Ireland too, is particularly exposed by the fact that it's had a large financial sector, a financial sector that's actually greater in relative size than it is in the US. So the UK especially is exposed to this shock. It certainly looked like how oil prices, and none of us at the Bank of England started to say that early up, that oil prices looked like they were actually a bubble. Central banks were responding as if it was the 70s, saying oil prices are rising, this is going to be a wage price explosion, which it never did, never looked like it. But it also turned out that in the US and the UK, a pretty good predictor of what was coming was to look at consumer surveys, surveys of consumer confidence, surveys of what people thought was going to happen to unemployment. Those surveys moved first in the US, and then they followed exactly the same pattern in Europe, um, and they predated any moves in the hard numbers. So if you'd have looked, they predicted it in the US, and people here didn't really realize that the same thing was going to happen here. One of the things that I would say, and I'm an economist, and I have to say that my experience now looking back at economics and what economics taught us was pretty disastrous. And I think that my subject has to have, to have a really major rethink. I'll just show you a couple of things. The first is that Bob Lucas, much of the economics, if you like, has been driven by a series of economists. And I think this is quite interesting. He won a Nobel Prize, and he said in his Nobel Prize that economics has shown that uh, basically we've solved the problem of depression prevention for all practical purposes. We've solved it for decades. This couldn't possibly occur, which is kind of worrying. Um, secondly, this is, this is really the sort of complacency of economics. In 2008, August, the chief economist at the IMF, uh, writing a summary of the state of macro, first of all, didn't actually refer to any data at all. Um, by August 2008, the US had been in recession for six months, didn't refer to that at all, and said the state of macro is good. It worries me especially, as a data person, that actually the other statement, which is quite sure this is really the background we have to think about, because we're going to have to rethink economics, and we have to rethink about how we do these things. And I think this is actually quite awful. It says, this is a quote, well-known well quote, over the last three decades, macroeconomic theory and the practice of macro by economists has changed for the better. Macroeconomics is now firmly grounded in the principles of economic theory. Um, I would like it to be grounded in the principles of the data, actually model the data, and that would have actually, it turns out that they'd have been focused on the data, we might have had a better sort of foresight of what was coming. And I like this quote. This is Bob Solo, subsequent Nobel Prize winner, one of the great macroeconomists of the last half century. The other possible defense of modern macro is however special it may seem, it's justified empirically. This too strikes me as a delusion. In fact, modern macro has been notable for paying very little rigorous attention to data. I'm left with the feeling that there's nothing in the empirical performance of these models that can come close to overcoming a modest skepticism. And more certainly, there's nothing to justify reliance on them for serious policy analysis. But unfortunately, central banks around the world, policymakers and so on, rely very heavily on them, and they gave them a false steer. So the background to this is that economics essentially didn't call the recession, didn't look at the data correctly. By August 2008, I'd been voting for cutting interest rate for a long time, and most macro models had nothing, weren't predicting that. Just as a background, I should say that these macro models actually don't have financial sectors in them, because they assume that markets are perfectly priced, financial markets perfectly price things. Don't laugh. They assume, they assume that. Um, and as we're going to see when we get to the world of quantitative easing, they don't actually have 
um, money quantities in them either. So the models weren't forecasting what was coming. They're not really telling us very much now. The same mistakes being made on the way in are actually being made on the way out. And I think this is important for us to understand. Um, as, a, as a macro policy maker, we tried to sort of think about how serious this financial crisis was. And I think the Bank of England's collective view, and I think of you, my view is the same, is that this is the greatest financial crisis in a century. It's greater than the Great Crash, probably comparable to what happened at the outbreak of the First World War. And this is a major um, financial crisis. And these financial crises, it turns out, are very different to other kinds of crises. So people look back and say, well, use these macro forecasts to look at what happened in 2002, or they'll look back at what happened in the 80s. But actually, what we probably should look at is what happened to previous financial crises. Obviously, the biggest people remember is what happened in the 30s, but it's not just that. So there's a set of papers by Reinhardt and Rogoff that I particularly like people to focus on, and that, I think, will put us in a rather... Um, less cheery mode. The first is that asset market collapses. This is, so they studied the, the, the last 85 collapses that occurred post-war. And the first thing that you find in these financial crises is that they're much deeper and worse than other crises. And these were crises where, if you like, Argentina collapses, but the UK and America and Germany are doing just fine. We've not really had any example where one country collapses, but everybody else is doing it at the same time. So I, so I pull from this, well, let's just see what the, the, the evidence is. Real house price drops in these crises average about 35%, sort of on track to what I think probably you're going to see. And equity price collapses average about 55%. The aftermath of banking crises are associated with large declines in output and employment. The unemployment rate increases an average of seven percentage points a million miles off the seen. Uh, around, the, around the globe. Um, output falls for some time periods, but the, 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 the change in the, the, the return of unemployment is much, is much longer. I mean, they take the UK case, which is that unemployment reached its low point in 1981 and didn't reach that level again for 20 years. <coughs> and then finally, there's issues about the explosion of government debt during these crises. Uh, and, then, and, and then the government budget constraint creates all kinds of, all kinds of problems. I'll try to flick us here. Aha. Um, I just want to place this a little bit in context for you and to talk about whether people think things are over. I have nice data for the UK as we've just generated these data. And the question really is, are we on the way out? Where is the world economy going? Uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the UK and the US. Um, the US this week had some positive uh, output growth. But uh, I was at the US Treasury last week, and their view is that you may well see some positive growth in the next year, perhaps 18 months. But after that, uh, they're very worried about the W shape and that the US itself will, will go back into a recession. Um, and the UK has had some negative data this quarter. And I just wanted to show you something which perhaps was a little bit scary, which is this is, this is output in the UK. Uh, and it's, um, so what you have here um, is the depth of, the, of the, the drop in output. So you can see around 6% drop in output to this point. And then the question is, how long does it take for output to get back to the level that it was to start with? Mervyn King in one press conference said, um, it's about, it's about um, levels, stupid. So it's not so much about does growth return, does the rate of growth return. It's about how long does it take you to get back to the output level that you were at to start with. Well, it turns out that well, there's two things I'd like to show you here. <coughs> Turns out that in comparison with the 80s, we're now at the same, in the UK, we're at the same level of drop, and presumably Ireland's probably even greater than that now, 
But let's just go with this, and I would obviously like to do the final as well. But I just wanted to show you this. So we're now probably closer to the red line than to any other line. So we now have six quarters of negative growth in GDP in the UK. Uh, I personally was not surprised about the negative quarter. Some hysterical commentary said it's impossible. I don't think it's impossible at all. And if you look at the track, that line seems to follow pretty darn well what happened in the UK in the 30s. Sorry, but can you, can you guys can you see? Okay. It follows pretty darn well what happened in the UK in the 30s. Two things to say. People call a depression in the US an output falls by 10%. But we've never seen that. So it seems to me we're pretty darn close to, we're probably closer to the experience of the 30s than to anything else. But also be mindful that there's a W. And the W is, um, you think it's all over. Some people think it's all over. And what they do is they say, ha everything's fine. Um, and, and they start to tighten too quickly. And that's the great error of the 30s. It was the error in the US in 1937. And it seems to me that that's probably where we are now. Because essentially all the data suggests that everything in the UK, the US, probably Germany, France, and any of the countries that are actually growing is almost entirely driven by fiscal stimulus and monetary stimulus. And there's very little evidence around the world that actually there's anything much happening in the private sector. So <coughs> people think it's all over, but Danny Boyd doesn't quite share that. Okay, next thing. So we've obviously seen quite significant declines in output since the peak. Um, Ireland's an example of a country where there's been a big decline in output. But a country, so let's just go back. There's a big decline in output. You look at the UK now, down 6.1%. But uh, one thing we have seen is actually that employment and unemployment in some of these countries really haven't um, declined to quite, to, to quite this degree. And this is a new phenomenon, that we'll get to it now. So here's what we see in the UK. Um, employment is that the islands really quite different, sort of different to, to this. Big fall in output, big fall in employment, um, big increase in unemployment. But some countries like the UK uh, and the US to a lesser extent have actually had a smaller decline in employment than they have had uh, an increase in unemployment. So let's just go to the increase in unemployment as you see over there. So we've had quite a, big, a bigger increase in unemployment than we had in, in, in employment. Drop in employment. And part of that is for two things. The first is that actually, in comparison to the past, firms have not been firing as much. What they've done is there's been flexibility on the wage front. Flexibility on the wage front, hours has dropped, so there's been flexibility within firms. But then what's happened is that um, they've, stopped, they've stopped hiring. That's the first thing. And that's had an impact on some groups, especially the young, and we'll get to talk about the young in a minute. The other thing that's happened is that actually, uh, wages have fallen quite a lot, uh, particularly of the self-employed, uh, particularly of uh, negotiated settlements where hours have dropped. And it seems to me, and we'll come back to it in a little bit, that people have not understood that this decline in earnings is probably not as temporary as they think it is. So the economies have responded, unemployment has kept, a, has kept relatively, you know, it hasn't increased as, as much perhaps as you would have thought, employment hasn't fallen as much, but people have taken the hit on the income front, and that's going to impact on people's spending. Uh, an example we were chatting about over lunch, I have a friend of mine who's, a, who's actually an architect uh, in the States, and he's playing a lot of golf. And the reason is that uh, he, he said to me, and, and we talked about where, where he would count in the data, he's a self-employed architect, um, plays a lot of golf, because he says over the last 15 months, he has not had any commissions at all, and neither have any of his friends. 
So yes, he's still in employment, he's still self-employed, but he's now got, he's got costs and no revenues. And at some point, that impacts his, his behavior. He didn't usually have his, spe his savings and so on, but at some point, he has to decide whether he's actually going to be um, uh, an architect or do something else. Okay. Seems to me where we are is this. And, and um, some countries have been able to come out of it more than others, but it seems to me this quote from Keynes is the right, the right place to look. Um, and what perhaps we should do is look at what happened in the 30s, what happened, not just today looking back ex post at what happened, but look at what happened as they were progressing through the 30s. What did they think? What did they think in 1931? What did they think in 1937? What mistakes did they make? And I'm afraid when you read that stuff, it sounds awfully like the rhetoric we've been hearing today. So I have in my mind that actually where we are, and this is this great quote written by Keynes in 1931 about the causes of unemployment, and, and, and he says, and I'll just read it to you, the duration of the slump may be much more prolonged than most people are expecting. And much will be changed both in our ideas and in our methods before we emerge. This is the big bit. Not, of course, the duration of the acute phase of the slump, but the, that of the long, dragging conditions of semi-slump, or at least subnormal prosperity, which may be expected to succeed the acute phase. So I think we are actually in the long, dragging conditions of semi-slump. And in fact, this is, uh, uh, and, and the danger will be that people take off stimulus too soon, and they push us into this W, uh, which maybe we can't even get out of. Maybe we won't even be able to get that lift, and the US did not get that lift for quite a long time until the outbreak of the Second World War. So this is a quote from Strauss Kahn, basically says that he thinks recovery is going to be sluggish, as I do. The problem will be amongst the banks. Premature exit from accommodated monetary and fiscal policy is a principal concern. So, I'm just going to move on a little. Um, it turns out that, particularly, um, I'll just perhaps move to this. I'll just come to this, I'm going to get to this one now. Can we come back? Let's just go to that in a moment. So, it appears across countries that countries that have had the biggest increases in unemployment have actually had these following characteristics. Um, perhaps surprisingly, if you look at the sort of research in economics, it doesn't appear that it's had anything much to do with unions or job protection or anything like that. The countries that have had the, the toughest time are, first of all, not necessarily, not necessarily in this order. First of all, countries that are exposed to world trade, which perhaps we wouldn't have expected, which were Germany, Japan, and Sweden. They've been particularly impacted by, by this recession. Secondly, countries that had large increases in house prices, Ireland and the UK. And then, uh, third, countries that actually had large financial sectors. Those have been the ones that have been particularly impacted. But also groups have been impacted, I'm just going to go back and say, groups have also been impacted um, because of uh, some people have really been hurt. And it turns out that folks who've really been hurt uh, in this recession turns out to be the young. Um, and what's happened is that in many countries, and Ireland too, not quite for the same set of reasons, What's happened in our, in, around the world is that as firms have stopped hiring, there's been some flexibility on the wage front. It turns out that this has really impacted on the young. And we're going to see, I think, very serious impacts of that. And I'll talk about what those impacts are in a minute. So the first thing we've seen is that youth unemployment has actually become particularly high now, and it's rising very fast. But one of the things which is quite a shock to folks, which is quite new, unlike the 80s, kind of is a little bit different, but follows pretty much a similar pattern. It turns out that 
we have a normal shock which hits particular groups, hits the weakest, hits people without skills, particularly hits the young. But unfortunately, around the world, the size of the youth cohort is bigger than it's ever been for the last two decades, and roughly is bigger than it will ever be for the next two decades. So not only have we come to a time when it's impacting the young, we'll talk about, and we'll talk about that, but it turns out there's lots of them. And this is a particular problem. Um, and that's true across the OECD. So I've said that it's high amongst people who are the least skilled. It's actually impacted the young as well. It's impacted college graduates around the world, but in some sense, young college graduates, but in some sense what's happened is those folks have taken jobs of others further down the spectrum, if you like, and it's really impacted, uh, it's really impacted on the young. One of the things that's happened around the world is that um, applications to college are up a lot, but in a country like the UK, numbers of places aren't up. So for the first time, many courses that you'd like to have filled, you couldn't fill before. People are, people are really trying to get to, to do them and then being unable to do that. So normally what happens in a big recession is that college applications are, are, are up. And that's, it turns out they haven't really responded enough. So let's just have a look at the latest sets of numbers. So these are I mean, the numbers for Ireland and elsewhere. So we're seeing across the, across the EU, um, youth unemployment rates of the orders of 20%. They're actually particularly high in, uh, in the UK where we've seen there is more flexibility to wages than there are in other countries. But we've seen this big jump. So we've seen in some countries, Spain and in Sweden. I think Sweden's a very interesting example. Sweden traditionally had this incredibly low unemployment rate for a really, really long time. Uh, um, Asa Lindbergh used to tell me the way they solved unemployment was to appoint a, professional, a single person to be in charge of the unemployed person to train them to take their job. And so what you do, that was public sector, but we're now, so Sweden is now got youth unemployment rates of 27.3%. Um, and let me show you, so let me show you, this is just, I'm going to show you the UK and then I'm going to show you Ireland. So this is the size of the youth cohort. It just turns out that we've hit this terrible recession time when there's lots of the folks. So we actually have data on how many, we can work out, this was done in 2008, so you can just move it. Each year you can move it, right? So, let's, so obviously a 22-year-old in 2008, we can look at a 12-year-old will be 22 in 2018. So we roughly, roughly, I mean, migration is going to change, but that's as good as it gets. So essentially what you have here in the UK is that uh, the number of, let's see, the number of 22-year-olds in 2008 hits the maximum. And that number is greater, as you can see, than the number, much greater than the number of 31-year-olds and much greater than the number of 11-year-olds. So the worry here is, first of all, you've got, you know, it's a high unemployment rate, but that doesn't tell you how many of them are. Imagine it's a 10% unemployment rate, there's a million of them. It's a 10% unemployment rate, there's two million of them. You've got, you've got many, many more. So it turns out you have many, many more uh, uh, across the globe. Ireland's a little bit different, but I will just show you a couple of things. I'll show you Ireland now. So there's Ireland. Ireland's, I, I, I did this yesterday, I didn't quite realise that slightly, slightly to the right, it's a slightly older group. It's fantastic. If you define the young as a little bit older, um, then, then you get the same pattern. But there is this big decline, and you'd imagine that these folks here have been, have, been, uh, have been hit. And the decline comes pretty darn rapidly. Um, one thing I would say that's actually, I'll show you, let me show you something else. I'll just, if I can show, oh, I'll show you the, just come to it. I can find a table. Hold on, so I have a table here somewhere. Um, here we are. Yeah, this is it. So this is a shock to folks as well. I think this table. 
Not only, so Ireland has, the, has a relatively small difference between 20-year-olds um, and 10-year-olds, just because of the diagram, you know, the, Ireland's a little bit to the right. But one of the big implications we're going to see around the world, actually, for the next 15 to 20 years, is that the number of young people diminishes really rapidly. So the other thing is that migration flows are going to diminish rapidly. So think about the flows from Poland to Ireland, from Poland to the, to the UK, and from Russia and from the Ukraine and so on. Across Eastern Europe, the number of 10-year-olds is half of the number of 20-year-olds. So, so this group, if you like, my worry, and I've talked about it, is the lost generation. The crucial part of this great recession is going to be, it's, it, it, there's a big number of young people who've come into the labour market altogether, and they're going to be a huge, huge lost generation, if you like. And I would like them to be paying for my retirement and your retirement and stuff later. But the problem as well is that actually the cohorts behind them are going to have to pay for them forever. So this seems to be one of the biggest worries about this, about this crisis, that the young are particularly impacted. Um, one of the things as well which worries me a lot is actually um, that unemployment is going to continue to rise. And uh, one of the big things that happened in, the, in Ireland and in the UK and other parts of the world is that people saw increases in unemployment coming. We're going to look at this with Ireland in a second. They saw increases in unemployment coming before they actually came, and they changed their behavior to it. So consumer confidence surveys in the US and the UK and Ireland and Germany and so on fell very early. So people expected increases in unemployment early in the recession. In the US, uh, in the most recent data, firms expect unemployment to increase, as it will. Uh, people think unemployment is going to increase. But across the European Union, firms think unemployment is going to increase, but people don't. And so I have a series I'm going to show you in a second called the Fear of Unemployment series, which strikes me as worrying. It may be why people haven't shown up. is because they think that um, unemployment is going to get better. So let me show you. This is for the EU as a whole. And I'll um, just, um, so this is, I'm going to show you the thing for Ireland in a second, so just bear with it, and then I'm going to give you Ireland, because Ireland's a bit of a problem, but I'll show you in a second. Um, so this is, this is this series, which actually, is a, so people really started across the whole of the EU, at the end, towards the end of 07, what I call the fear of unemployment series, which has a really big effect on people's wages, turns out. This series is pretty important. By the end of 07, people were thinking wages were going to rise. And in the UK, especially when we talk to unions and so on, they say to me, well, people think they're, going to, they're worried about losing their jobs. We're not in a, in a game where we're going to raise wages. We're really worried about, uh, about unemployment. And it turns out that this is partly to do with polls coming and all the rest of it. But really, it was about insecurity. So insecurity rose a lot through 08. So here's the, here's the rise. And that gets you to about the beginning of 09. And this is true in every EU country, basically. At the start of 09, just as unemployment really starts to grow, really starts to increase, in the UK the monthly increases are about 12 or 15,000, just as they got to 50,000, the series turned. So in every country, the series turned, and we'll show you, I'll show you Ireland. Um, so there's the series for Ireland. The flat bit along the top is Blanchard, because, because you guys, because of the voting things that you did and stuff, the survey stopped. The survey stopped at 59 for about six months. So, so I just drew it as if it was flat, but I presume it probably went up and came back again. But if I just, the last number I had, I filled in six months at 59. But the point of the story is, since, about, since the series came back in about March, 
the pe people in Ireland think unemployment's going to improve. It's kind of seems to me sort of worrying. That's true in every EU country. Not true. Not true in the in the rest of Europe, and it's not true actually amongst businesses or firms. So that seems to me to be a considerable worry that going forward, and part of the reason the talk of green shoots, people have believed, um, and, and I'm worried about that. Okay. Well, what are the consequences of, of unemployment? This is a thing that we do. It seems to me this is really the, the crucial thing we need to think about. And the great worry is that we're actually going to have this W. The great worry is we're going to go over a cliff because, uh, because the consequences actually fundamentally are going to fall on unemployment as it starts to rise. What are the consequences of unemployment? And especially what are the consequences of youth unemployment? And I'm trying to get from this talk, I'm trying to move the, if you like, youth unemployment from being some, somewhere on a low down on the list line banks and insurance companies and whatever, to actually number one on your list for the reasons I'll show you now. Obviously we worry in the Irish case because of the lost output involved, and the worry is that you lose skills, but you say it's a price worth paying because of readjustment. Well the worry is that there are actually asymmetries here. First thing, and this is, you know, Tom John was going to talk about habits, but I am, because it turns out that there's a lot of evidence that unemployment makes people stressed, it makes people unhappy, and it turns out that it, raise, it, rise, it increases people's susceptibility to, to illness. It raises suicide rates. It actually also lowers people's life expectancy, poor health outcomes, people's morale sinks. And one of the great worries is actually as unemployment increases, crime rates tend to rise, especially property crime. One thing I think is quite interesting to tell you, folks, was that when I was, at, I was at the OECD meeting a month ago, where OECD high-level employment ministers were there, um, and, the, and the head of the ILO talked about, and there was a debate about, why there's not been social unrest. Why we haven't really seen big increases in crime, why we haven't seen street riots and so on. And the ILO's view is actually that what we've seen to this point is everybody's on their back. It's absolute deprivation. The worry will be if some groups start to benefit and others don't, and the relative deprivation starts to appear, their concern is that actually you will see social unrest. One of the other things it turns out, I mean, I'm a happiness person, it actually turns out there's quite a lot of work which has just been done, a big prize just been given recently to, to Dick Easton about the fact that actually for a macroeconomist, if you think of it, growth and inflation and unemployment are just intermediate goods. They're about well-being, so we, you know, it is relevant. Turns out that the fear of being unemployed lowers people's happiness a lot, and in fact, the happiness of people who are unemployed um, rises a lot, but the unhappiness of everybody else, so the unhappiness of everybody else rises. But a particular concern to me is the evidence of this, that actually economies like the Irish economy and the British economy are pretty resilient, they get through it, they get over it, but some groups don't. And actually, the young don't. There's an old literature, dates back, actually I started working on this in the early 80s, and there's a book called The Youth Labour Market Problem, dated 1982, I think it was, out of um, the NBR, edited by, by my good friend and co-author Richard Freeman and David Wise. And there's a famous paper in there by, De by David Elwood, where he talks about the effects that youth unemployment has on people and on the macroeconomy. And the argument is actually that Youth unemployment creates permanent scars. Permanent scars on the individuals, but as a macroeconomist, actually what it does is that it raises the level of unemployment in the future. If you like, it creates further hysteresis in the unemployment rate, um, and it creates scars. 
So the, the, a paper, the paper in, in our paper together, David Bell and I, uh, have some data which I think is quite astonishing. We have data in the UK, and it's available in some other countries where we have a, if people ever saw the program 11 up and 16 up, it's actually a group of people. It's every single person in Britain who was born between the 3rd and the 9th of March 1958. So we followed them for whatever it is, 51 years now. Um, and we can look back. So we look back, we have data on, on when they were 48. And the question is, what, what effect does unemployment have on them? It turns out this is actually an astonishing fact. We know with these folks, so they were 23 in the early 80s, so they were, they were young during the 1980s recession. So we have data on whether they had any unemployment in that recession. But we also know, subsequent to that, did they have any unemployment later? So it turns out the following, and this is quite telling. It turns out that spells of unemployment in the 1980s when they were young haunt them forever. It, it, so if I said, what does a spell of unemployment do when you were 23? Answer, it raises the probability of, being, of you being unemployed 25 years later. What was it? 25 years later. It lowers your health. It generates a lower wage. But you'd say, well, it's just a long time ago. <coughs> you'd look at stuff that occurred more recently, and presumably that had an effect. Well, actually, we can show you that's not true. We can show that if you have an unemployment spell, say, in your 30s, that does nothing. You go over it. But at 48, the spell of unemployment you had at 23 still worsens your experience today. So that's obviously very telling. And what it means is that if you have this group of young people unemployed today, they're going to haunt you for a really long time. So maybe the story is going to be about relative things mattering, but my, my view is in a sense that people are going to say, well, if you say this much, what about older folks, and what about, and why would you help those folks? And the answer is actually, I think of this as a, it's like a, it's like a, a small town in Ireland, some shock comes along and the town's hit, and you all as a nation say, right, we're going to go and help that, and people in court wouldn't say, well, we can't go and help it, because what about people in court? You'd say, it's a national crisis, we've got to do something about it. And I think that's really where we, where we are. So, uh, where does this take you? How am I doing for time? Oh, I probably won't even take it all. Um, so this takes us to, well, where are we? Where, where are we? Uh, come to a country like Ireland, where obviously there's public spending cuts issue and uh, a number of issues going on, and we'll, I'm going to talk about that. And actually, having been a policymaker at the Bank of England, um, I'm going to try and think through what, what we need to do. My, my position was actually, uh, through this crisis, what we did needed to do was to take out insurance, take out insurance as to what the low side risk is. And in essence, it's about uh, whether the risk of, if you like, having difficulty of, of, of being able to get into the financial markets and, and issue bonds and so on against the risk of the economy going over a cliff. And I've taken the view that the economy going over a cliff is so terrible that we need to do almost anything to prevent that from happening. So actually, which may not be uh, new to hear, well, good for some to hear, I've argued for quite a long time that what you need is stimulative fiscal policy. The debate in the UK is about um, cutting public spending, and I've gone on record a number of times saying that the Tories' policy is actually to start cutting public spending if they get into power next year. I think that's dangerous, because I think what you do is you hold that until you're through the recession, because you don't want to turn a recession into a depression, and we'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. Um, for the UK, it's, it's, it seemed to me that what you had to do was lower interest rates and do enough quantitative easing, I've written keep going, 
Um, in the UK, we stopped at around half a percent, and the reason we stopped was actually we went so quickly that we didn't actually hadn't worked out the legislative changes that needed to be taken place to not wipe the building societies out. But in principle, you need to do more quantitative easing. But the great benefit the UK has had, I took the view three months ago, that the Bank of England, um, they produced a forecast which said they needed to do more quantitative easing, and the, minor and the minority, including King and Miles and Besley, voted for it, and the majority, uh, for some unknown reason, voted against it. But the UK had a benefit, because it was almost certain that if you had forecast that inflation was never going to hit the target, and that you needed to do more stimulus, the markets would respond, and they have, and it's hurt you folks. Because what's happened is that, and, I, and, I, and I've done it before, um, you don't write in your minutes of your meeting that what we want to see is the exchange rate fall, but that's what you're going to do. So you're going to talk down the exchange rate, and that's what, and that's what Merlin King has done, and that's given the UK a benefit, and it's obviously hurt you folks, and I think what you're going to see is that actually down the road it's going to hurt fans in Germany, because they're now starting to experience their, their manufacturing sector and so on. It's starting to experience the impact of a of a um, of an appreciating currency. So the benefit of having a separate currency like the pound is you can do more quantitative easing and you can actually talk down the pound. And it doesn't seem to me that the risks in the financial markets are, are that great. The greatest risk is actually that we go over a cliff. Um, the second part of it is actually that people, in a sense, this is part of the story about why consumer confidence has risen and why people believe in green shoots. And in some sense, why, when you ask retailers, what they think is going to happen, they say, oh, it's going to be fine. Because why do they, what do they know about the banks? <coughs> and the problem is that the banks are not actually lending. Um, the, uh, first, the banks are not actually lending. And second, foreign banks have left in many countries. And then, and then third, the price of risk has risen. So I'll just throw an example to you. And I saw something right there, actually in the paper, reading on a plane on the way over. It seems to me to have in people's minds, obviously banks' balance sheets have not been fixed. But let's just think about what's actually happened, and I think this kind of sets it pretty well. Think that, say, say in the UK context, and Ireland will do as well too. Um, you had 10 banks, each of whom should have lent at 100, but they lent at 200. So there's over-exuberance in lending. Okay, so what's happened are two things. The first is that four of those 10 banks left. The foreign banks went home because they couldn't get money from the central bank, they left. So the UK foreign banks just disappeared. And what's happened is that the banks themselves then went from lending at 200 to lending at 80. So now what you have is this dilemma. For the shareholders of the bank, the six banks remaining, it's optimal for them to lend to 100. But that's only 60% of what the country needs. The country needs to fill the gap left by the foreign banks. And somehow or other, there's this dilemma. The private benefits of the banks are to lend at 100, but that's not, a, so what you've, so that's not enough for the country as a whole. You've actually got 60% of the lending you should have. So what we're in a position now is that over-exuberance in lending is replaced by under-exuberance in lending. And obviously the difficulty for a policymaker is actually that you need to fix the balance sheets, but you need to get um, the banks lending again. That's the first thing. Um, and it seems that if you don't own them, it's hard to say, pretty please, pretty please lend again. The way to get them to lend is probably to say, well, I own you, and bloody start lending. But people have missed the other major part of this, which is that this is about sorting out the supply of lending. The issue really is, where's the demand for lending coming? And most of the demand growth is driven by public stimulus around the world, not private stimulus, I think that's true in Germany, true in the UK, true in the US. 
um, that it's public stimulus that's been driving, it's not public sector, it's not the problem, public sector has been the solution. The problem is that the private sector, there's no evidence around the world that the private sector stepped into this hole at all, and that any firms really anywhere are, um, are, are, are investing or hiring people. Um, so I, I said I was at the Treasury last week in the US, and if you look there, I think what you'd see actually is that the labour market would actually lead, give you some evidence of a lead out. And the reason is this. In, in this recession, the labour market was a pretty good lead indicator in. And in previous recessions, what you saw is the labour market lags for a while. But what happens is that some sectors start to grow. So imagine employment's not rising much at all, maybe still falling. But in two sectors, there's stuff going on. So if it's a house building boom, construction employment starts to rise. Or if it's a financial services boom, financial services start to rise. If you look in the US, which I think is going to be a driver to much of what happens in the world, if you look in the US, of 150 industries, where traditionally we'd expect to see 15 or 20 of them growing, um, between August and September of this year, and if I keep longer than it's worse, between August and September this year, only one industry was growing, and so healthcare. So there was no evidence at all in the US, none at all, of any employment growth coming. And the great worry, and this is just the background because we're, we're economies that are driven by what happens in the US. Um, the um, the first, first time this month, public sector employment has fallen by 50,000 in one month in the US. They've been, um, the public sector has been firing teachers, 40,000 fallen teachers, 22 states have got balanced budget amendments. Those states are pulling back. And essentially, the Treasury is now, and the Congress is now in the position that, at some point, they're probably going to have to do a second stimulus because of all the pullbacks that are coming in these states. So the likelihood in the U.S. is that there's going to be a W shape. And if, the, if there's a W shape in the U.S., it will feed itself through to us. So that's the reason why people have said, like me, that actually things are not much over. Um, one of the big... How am I doing? Four minutes? Yeah. How much? Two minutes. Right, fine. Um, Two more slides. Um, the big thing seems to be what you have to do is you've got to, you've got to focus on the young. I would like to see positive public sector stimulus, but whatever condition on whatever size that stimulus is, I think there has to be a refocus. Whatever help you're giving, that focus has to go on the young because it's going to impact the economy in the long run. We don't, so the paper goes into quite a lot of details. My view is that one big way is to expand education because the costs of actually not doing that are too high. The problem is that I don't think you can think about training for particular things because I don't know where the jobs are going to come from. But relative subsidies for the young, um, I'm going to keep talking about there's other policy measures. Um, here's, I'm just going to, one minute and I'm done. Um, the evidence around the world is that people said, oh, then you should take the stimulus off. But the fundamental policy error is to make, is to take stimulus off too quickly. It's not, if you keep it going for too long, we know what to do. And actually, we can talk, probably more people will talk about it here. It turns out that four or five years of inflation will probably be a pretty good thing. Um, the problem is if you take off things too soon. And Skidelsky, who's Keynes' biographer, has this great quote, which I think I like this quote. It says, the, act, the object of macro policy should be to keep the economy in quasi-boom so the economic problem is solved and people could live wisely and agreeably and well. That's when well-being is high. And the argument is you take things, you take the stimulus off when you're in quasi-boom, people obviously say, well, what's quasi-boom? And I say, well, it's like pornography. Don't know how to define it, but I know it when I see it. And we sure as heck ain't there. So this, it seems to me that, um, obviously there are special circumstances in particular countries and so on, but it seems to me that 
the relative risks are actually much greater on the side that we could actually be back to where we were in the 30s. We could fall off a cliff. We could uh, have a significant W. And uh, uh, we may well see uh, a, a, a W shape. We may even see a series of Ws, some letter which has gone up and then go down and we carry on. Or even worse, we might just see an L, where the recovery is so anemic and so benign that we really are stuck in a decade of, of lost output. But it seems to me we are still experiencing the dragging conditions of semi-slump. And it certainly seems to me that cutting public spending or public sector wages or employment deep in a recession is at stake and may turn a recession into a depression. Um, the time to act is now, and really you need to focus on the young, but having your head that diagram which makes which, uh, for the UK, and it's true for other countries, that it's probably easier to get to a depression than to get out of this recession. Anyway, I thought I wasn't going to cheer you up. <laughs> Thank you.